All right. Good to see you this President's Day weekend. Strong showing on a holiday. This is good. Or I guess tomorrow's a holiday, huh? Um, We've been in this series on the wilderness wanderings, and we have yet to introduce any maps or pictures. So let's let's get to this. This stuff actually happened in the world. Here is a, whoops, can I get that there? There we go. All right. So here's the area that they're wandering around during these uh, 40 years or so. To be honest, we don't actually know exactly where a lot of the, the sites are, where they stop. I mean, this was a long time ago. and um, But uh, Mount Sinai... Is we're going to talk about that today, Exodus 19. Some people think Mount Sinai was maybe up here. Some even think it was over here somewhere. But um, tradi- this is the traditional site of Mount Sinai, which is now in um, Arabic is known as Jebel Musa, which means the mountain of Moses. And if you go there today, um, it will look something like this. It is stark and desolate and just a massive uh, face of granite there. Um, At the bottom, this is kind of not, uh, has anything to do with Exodus 19, but just kind of a freebie. At the bottom of this mountain is uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. And St. Catherine's Monastery is, uh, it's been a monastery since the, I think the fifth century. It has the longest continuously operating library in the world at this at this monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, and at this uh, library at the monastery was found in, in the 19th century, one of the most important biblical manuscripts that we have today in the world. It was from the fourth century. It's called the Codex Sinaiticus, and it has the complete New Testament and much of the Old Testament um, from, from way, way back. So anyway, just a fun tidbit about Mount Sinai. So, um, at Mount Sinai, um, right here as we begin chapter 19 of Exodus, are you there? Um, this is, uh, marks a new phase in the story of Exodus, and it's actually, uh, it, Israel takes shape as a nation right here. So much important stuff happens at Mount Sinai. They're going to stay there for a, a whole year. And, and many, many chapters of the Old Testament are devoted to what happens at their time here uh, in Mount Sinai. So here begins where God is going to lay out for his people uh, what it means to live in a covenant relationship with him. And so what I want you to keep in mind, a question as we read the scripture and as we unpack it today, um, is this. Um, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it? mean to enter into a covenant relationship with a holy God. That's where we are. So I know you just sat down, but if you're able to honor the reading of God's word, will you stand as we read from Exodus chapter 19? Listen to God's word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and he called all the elders of the people and he set before them all these words of the Lord uh, that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready on the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether the beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. That is, have sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very large trumpet blast, loud trumpet blast, so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. And come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Keep your Bibles open. So, key word today. Holy. Holy. We've already sung it. Holy, holy, holy. We're going to sing it some more before we leave today. Two things I want you to see about God's holiness. And the first is this, that, that God's holiness is beautiful. God's holiness is what he wants for his people. He wants to make his people holy. So look at verse 5 again. In verse 5, he says, uh, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. 
We need to see this before we go any further, that the Lord, in establishing a covenant relationship with his people, he is not interested in an open relationship. He is looking for commitment. Uh, he, he wants obedience. Now, the obedience that God wants for his, from his people is not just to prop up his own ego. He does not need that. But rather, he wants obedience, faithfulness. He wants holiness from his people so that his purposes in the world will be fulfilled. Do you remember we talked about God's purposes last week? He chose one man in his family, Abraham, and he said, Behold, I will bless you and make you a a great nation, and I will make you a blessing to all the nations upon the earth. So God's great end, his great purpose, is to bless all nations, all peoples, so that they might come and enjoy God forever. They might, all of us might be in a relationship with God. But his, his means of doing that, of drawing people to himself, is to call one group of people to himself and make them holy. Now, after he says that to, about, if you will keep my, uh, obey me and keep my covenant, he says three things that will be true of them if they do this, if they live in obedience to him. And the first is this, that they will be his treasured possession. His treasured possession. What is it that that God holds so dearly? It's his people. I came across an article online this week about uh, refugee uh, children and young people and their treasured possessions. So this is is Harold. He's 17. He left Venezuela uh, a few years ago and had to discard many things that did not fit in his bag when he left the chaos to start a new life in Peru. But he was careful to bring along that medal that's hanging around his neck that he earned in high school. And he hopes that that will be the first of many uh, honors that he earns in his life. That's his treasured possession. This is uh, the hands of Agnes that you see. She was a young mother who fled South Sudan with her infant son soon after the Civil War. And the instability uh, created a huge, severe food crisis there. Unfortunately, her baby contracted malaria and died just days after their arrival in a refugee settlement. And this little hat is all she has left to remember him by. It is her treasured possession. She doesn't want to lose that. This picture is is a picture of Hamza. He's 14 years old. And he holds this treasured handwritten note from his teacher in Syria in which the teacher called him a star pupil student. He made sure to pack the note with him when his family left Syria to make a home in Jordan. These are, these are treasured possessions that they could not, they didn't want to leave without. And God says, I'm looking for a people who will be faithful, who will listen to me, and they will be my treasured possession. Now, Why will he treasure them so much? Well, it's because of how, again, he can use them for his glory. They will not only be his treasured possession, but they will be a kingdom of priests. All of the nation of Israel will be a kingdom of priests. Now think with me for a minute. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and his people. A priest represents God before the people, teaching them, God's ways. And the priest represented the people before God. 
And the priest would pray for them and offer sacrifices on their behalf. So it was a a go-between kind of situation, a mediator. God's point here is that Israel, the whole nation of Israel, was to be as a kingdom of priests. Now, who are they standing between God and who? All the peoples on the earth who God wants to reach with his love and his glory. So these people of Israel are to live sacrificially for their neighboring nations. And they are to represent God, making God's ways known to the peoples of the earth. They are to be a kingdom of priests. Not only that, they are to be a holy nation. Now, again, we, we sing this song a lot, or the word a lot. We talk about it, holy, holy, holy. What does holy mean? Holy does not mean somebody who is holier than thou and walks around thinking, I'm so much better than everyone else. Holy does not mean somebody who does uh, just a ton of extra religious activities. That is not what holy means. Holy means a, a, a something or someone who is set apart. So God's holiness consists in him being set apart from all the corruption on earth. He is holy. He is pure. And he is looking for a people that will be set apart, not in isolation from other people. No, but rather set apart for his purpose of bringing the knowledge of God to the nations, to the peoples. Now in the chapter that we're going to look at next week and many of the chapters after that in Exodus, God will set forth his law to the people that will, that will tell them about how they are to behave and what it means to be a set apart people. Their obedience will demonstrate God's goodness to all who come apart from them. So Paul Swaram, he's an Indian scholar. He put it like this. He says, through the law and their obedience to the law, they will see that holiness means um, a bunch of things. If they obey the law, they'll see that holiness means sharing the harvest with the needy. Holiness means treating and paying employees fairly. Holiness means showing compassion to the disabled and in respect to the elderly. A holy nation has courts that are, are just and fair, has, uh, follows safety laws, cares for the environment. And there's that picture. I don't know why it keeps popping up in my slides, but there we go. Um, <laughs> holiness means protecting and giving justice to foreigners. Holiness means following honest business practices. So all of this, keeping God's law, was not a matter of legalism or abstract like sanctification, being better people. No, they were keep the law to fulfill their mission in the midst of the nations to show the peoples how beautiful God's holiness is. Do you know that God still purposes to use his people, a holy and obedient people, to point those who don't know God to his glory and love and wisdom. How do we know this? Well, we see it picked up in the New Testament. Peter, in chapter 2, is now talking about not Israelites, descendants of Abraham physically. He's talking about us, the church. And he says, you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions. Sound familiar? Straight from Exodus 19. 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, his wonderful light. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Why? And glorify God on the day he visits you. The same thing that was true of God's purposes for the nation of Israel now is true for the new Israel, the church. He wants us to be holy, to showcase his beauty, not so people look at us and think, wow, they're pretty, they're pretty amazing people. But so they look at us and see how great our God is. Peter Enns is a scholar, wrote a commentary that I've been enjoying a lot on this. And he says this, we are called the church. We are called to be God's holy people in any and every circumstance. We befriend unpopular and outcast people. We come quickly and unselfishly to the help of people around us. We do not let ourselves be obsessed with the type of things others around us are obsessed with. Things like success and power and money in all their various forms. We are unafraid to be unrecognized or even humiliated when by the world's standards we ought to assert ourselves more. And acting this way, we are being holy and separate. And sooner or later, someone, somewhere, in one way or another, will notice and perhaps admire you for it. But this isn't the point. Listen, he goes on and says, Then they will be forced to look in the face of God who has trained you to behave that way. That's holiness. And friends, holiness is beautiful. But holiness, holiness is also awesome. Now, when you hear me say awesome, don't think of like the 1980s, like awesome, dude. That's not what I mean. I mean that which is filled with awe and wonder. God's holiness leaves us with our mouth hanging open. We see this starting in verse 10 in the way that he prepares a people just to come into his presence. Look at it again. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments, be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the, in the sight of all the people. The point being, when you prepare to meet a holy God, you don't just traipse into his presence nonchalantly. You don't do it casually. Friends, God is not your homeboy. He's not your buddy. He's not your life coach. He, no, no, no. He's not your co-pilot. He is God Almighty. King of kings. Lord of lords. Now, every good parent and teacher knows that when you start out your parenting or when you start out with the classroom, you don't waltz in and say, we're going to be great friends here today and try to make buddy-buddy with people. What is a, a teacher starts the year laying down the law, right? And establishing a, a relationship of respect, and within that relationship, then all the goodness and love and kindness and informality can take place. But the respect's got to be there first. 
God's doing the same thing here. He's setting boundaries up. He's setting expectations about how you approach a holy God. Now we see that his coming to the people comes with all kinds of signs, right? Look at it again. It comes with thunder and lightning. This is in verse uh, 18. It comes with smoke and fire and the whole mountain shaking. This is like standing in a place where the earthquake and a volcano and a fire is going on all at once. And not only that, but there's the sound of a trumpet that just gets louder and louder and louder as if to alert everyone, wake up, something important is happening. God himself is coming down to meet you. Wow. A.W. Tozer, famously a famous pastor, he said, this was God's way of saying by suggestion and association what we couldn't understand with words. He couldn't just tell us I'm awesome. He he brought all these attentive signs to show us what it was what it's like to come into the presence of God. A few years ago, I went with a bunch of friends uh, to Zion National Park. Um, everybody, you've been to Zion National Park? It is amazing place. And as we, uh, one night we went to a, an overlook point. We had hiked down through the narrows and all that kind of stuff. But one night we decided to go up onto a, a, an overlook place. And this is the picture I snapped um, from the top. It's just gorgeous. And these these cliffs here are are some of them are 2,000 feet steep. I mean, it's just like, oh, wow. Now, as we were making our way up to this lookout point, there was like a lot of bushes and trees on the side. And so some of us decided like we wanted to catch the view for a longer period of time. So we went off the path and we were just kind of like bumbling around and having a good time and talking. And all of a sudden, no guardrail, no fence, no sign. It was just, we were at the cliff. Again, not 50 feet down, but like over a thousand feet down. And I got to tell you, right then and there, I was in awe. And my stomach turned of like, I'm not sure this is safe. <laughs> That's the sense when we come before a holy God, what is going on here? Perhaps you've had an experience like that. Maybe it's that you've been standing near a a waterfall that's just thundering and you don't just hear it. You feel it throughout your body. Or maybe you've had the experience of being out in a thunder and lightning storm and it's just awesome, scary awesome. That's the scene. In these places, we feel our smallness. We feel our weakness. We feel our, our vulnerability in proximity to such power, such majesty, such grandeur. I want to ask you this morning, do you have this sense when you come before God himself that you are standing in the presence of the holy, majestic, living God. Oftentimes, I'll be watching a, uh, a sporting event and, and the athlete afterwards will say, I just want to thank the big guy upstairs or the old man in the sky, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I, there's part of me that cringes every time I hear that kind of language. 
Because I'm afraid that, that these kind of phrases help erode our sense of the awesome holiness of the God that we're talking about. The casualness with which we address and approach God that you just don't find in the scriptures. When people approach God in the scriptures, what do they do? Flat on their face as though dead because they are coming before the awesome, holy God. This is one thing I love about the brilliance of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, that he cast the Christ figure as a lion, right? Do you remember that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when, when Lucy and Susan, the two sisters, discover that Aslan is not a man, but he's a lion? And Susan, Susan says, uh, I shall feel re- rather nervous about meeting a lion, And Mrs. Beaver says, uh, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. (laughs) Yeah. And so then her sister asks, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the picture that we have here in Exodus 19, that that of course he isn't safe. He's holy, but he's good. He's good. So here's my question for us as we finish up. We've kind of done with our Exodus 19 Bible study. But the question is, for us who, who know Jesus, the one who came to show us God's grace and mercy and kindness, the question is, should we fear God? Now, it's kind of a simple question, but if you were to look through the New Testament, you might find that the evidence is, well, rather conflicted. Paul himself said, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father, not a spirit of fear. And yet the same apostle says in 2 Corinthians, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. Let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Okay, maybe Paul is uh, having just, you know, off on two different days there when he wrote these things. What about the apostle John? Well, apostle John says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But that same apostle, when he recorded his vision that was found in in the book of Revelation, says this. The angel said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So what is it? Do we as Christians, should we fear God? Let's look at one more text. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12? It's close to the end of your New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the, the author of this letter again and again is comparing the relationship that the people of Israel had in the old covenant with God to the relationship that we have 
through Jesus in the new covenant era. And here in the middle of chapter 12, he likens these two covenants to two mountains. One is Mount Sinai that we've looked at today. And the other is Mount Zion. That is another name for Jerusalem, the mountain where Jesus himself was crucified. Now, look at it with me. Hebrews 12, verse 18. He says to these Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's the picture that we looked at today in Exodus 19, right? A picture uh, that's filled with terror. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What's going on? There's this like huge party, maybe a mosh pit of angels just going crazy. They're having fun. And to the assembly of the firstborn, that is all, every person there is an heir of, uh, co-heir with Christ who are enrolled in heaven and to God. You come to God, to the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made person perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's that whole thing about the better word than the blood of Abel? Remember Genesis chapter four, Cain kills his brother Abel and God says, what have you done? The the blood of your brother cries out to me. What's it crying out? It's crying out for judgment, for justice, for vengeance. And, and the author of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. What does it cry out? It cries out mercy, grace, forgiveness. And the, the, the message is you have been sprinkled with this blood of, of Jesus. Now notice the, the vast difference in these two mountains, these two ways of relating to God. One is impersonal. One is a sense of terror that dominates throughout and the other The the way of Zion is joyful, personal, welcome, inviting. And yet notice what this is to produce in us who, who celebrate God's goodness to us in Christ. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Listen, for those of us who look upon the face of Jesus and we see God smiling back at us, we see the God who is with us and for us. The response should be great joy, even confidence and boldness in coming before his throne of grace. And yet at the same time, deep reverence holy fear and awe that the the same God, the God and father of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is holy, holy, holy. It's with that 
all of that in mind, that we come to this table week by week. And I want to encourage you, don't come to this table just nonchalantly, casually, like it's any other day of the week. We're coming before this, these elements that remind us that the holy God sent his one and only son into the world to be a holy, perfect offering for you and for me. In love, he sent the one person who could affect our forgiveness. Jesus, the perfect, pure, holy son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We come to this table week by week and we remember this truth that his body was broken. His blood was shed so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so we come with gratitude, come with a smile on your face and yet come with holy reverence. This might be a day that you want to kneel before the table, not because this space up here is holy, but because the God who gave his life for you and I is a holy God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are not like us. Thank you that you have sent your son, your holy son, to do what we could never do, to make a way, to be the bridge between a a sinful people and a holy God. And Lord, we pray that as as we eat these elements, as we feast spiritually on Christ, that you would make us holy, transform us from within so that we might bear the beautiful, holy character of our Savior and our Lord, not for our own sake, but for the sake of others who don't know the the beauty of being in relationship with you, God. Do this in us, Lord, and we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.